Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to today's episode. I'm LaWanda Tony, And I'm Helen Westmoreland, and we are your co-hosts. We're so excited about today's guest. As some of you may know, one of our most popular episodes was Raising Kids Who Embrace Race. And we talked about how families can raise advocates for racial justice. Today, we're thinking about racial justice through the lens of school life. That's right, Luanda. We're exploring what does it take to create a school culture that is actually welcoming to all students? How can we ensure that, as adults debate critical race theory, youth aren't caught in the crossfire? Schools have made great strides when it comes to diversity and inclusion, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So, Luanda, tell us about our very special guest. Helen, we have a fantastic guest today who's going to help us answer those questions. We're welcoming Dr. Sean Jones to the show. Dr. Sean Jones is an assistant professor in the counseling program in the psychology department at Virginia Commonwealth University. He received his doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis on children and families and holds a master of health science in mental health. Dr. Jones' work focuses on the psychosocial well-being of Black youth and their families. He also co-hosts our Mental Health Minute podcast with Dr. Rihanna Anderson. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sean. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. So first and foremost, I just want to say it's such a distinct honor to have the opportunity to be with you all, LaWanda and Helen, on today. We're so happy to have you. We're excited. Really looking forward to the discussion. So yes, my day job, so to speak, is as a professor and a clinical psychologist. I'm licensed in my commonwealth of Virginia, and I work with children and families. In addition to all of those things, I'm also from Texas, and that means a lot to me in some of the conversations that we may be having today. And then in terms of the work that I and my team down in Richmond, Virginia do, is we really strive to think about ways in which we can harness and support the strengths that are inherent among Black youth and Black families. So really coming from this narrative that, wait, we don't have to pinpoint the things that are going wrong. How can we think about the things that are going right in your day, in your life, in your family, and accentuate those things for the benefit of your mental health? That's awesome. We all need that. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Got to accentuate the positive for sure. That's so true. So I actually want to just start off building off what you just said, Dr. Sean. Obviously, this has been a tough past year and a half for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I hear you talking about really the importance of building on family assets. How would you describe what you're seeing as Black family and youth well-being right now? Where are their strengths? Where are their needs that we need to support? Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a really, really challenging 18 plus months Mm -hmm. that we have been going through collectively. And at the same time, we have seen disparity. There are ways in which we are together in an experience. And then somehow these differences, these disparities emerge. So when we think about Black family life, whether we think about the summer of 2020 and some of the racial reckoning that occurred there, 
or we're talking about this longstanding pandemic that we still find ourselves in, a pandemic that has disproportionately impacted Black and brown communities and families. I'm going to take the second part of your question first, that there are many things that Black families are navigating, right? There's these stressors that we all have in daily life, getting ready for the school year, going to a new grade, picking classes out, these things that can be exciting and challenging. Then we overlay that with this pandemic and some of the stress and the anxieties and the uncertainties around this global pandemic that has unfolded. And then let's just layer on top of that, right, racism and racism-related stress and reckoning Mm -hmm. around that. So that is certainly a tall order for Black families to navigate and wade against. That being said, Helen and Lawanda, what we're finding when we interview Black families in the research that we're doing is a remarkable amount of resilience that we're seeing in the face of those things. And really that there are a couple of themes that are emerging. So one is really the importance of staying grounded and one sense of identity as connected to well-being. So this idea of whether it's family, the adults or caregivers in family systems or family members telling each other, this is who you are, you're still great, you're awesome, despite what you're seeing or reading about or hearing that is going on, despite these uncertainties, you're still great. And actually, being a little chocolate boy or chocolate girl, being Black, that actually is cool. So this intentional language around harnessing and supporting identity, this socialization around those things is a very, very common and persistent theme that we're seeing when we think about how we cut through all of those layers of stress to get to Mm -hmm. a side of health and well-being. Mm, Absolutely. I want to follow that up a little bit with the flip side of that is how schools are responding and Mm -hmm. supporting. What are some of the things that you're learning there? Yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of things that I'm really excited about. So one is really thinking about these things are systemic. So it's great if Mm -hmm. XYZ Elementary is Mm -hmm. really honoring all students in their school. It's better if the district that XYZ Elementary belongs to is really on board Mm -hmm. with this. So what we're really seeing is taking some of the research, the longstanding research on racial identity, on racial pride, on even teaching about racial difference in a respectful way, and really putting that in the hands of teachers, of aides, as well as superintendents and principals to say, okay, how can we set up a school culture that we don't say we are all the same? We actually say, oh, no, we all have these differences, and look how they're cool, and look how we can bring these different foodstuffs or these different musical experiences or these different ways of cultural styling and dress together to support that and to uplift that? And how can we set up our room? How can we set up the built environment to have images that reflect all of the students who are sitting at the table or sitting in their seats, but the seeds that can be planted now and into the future to really kind of wrestle with thinking about how we create these verbal and nonverbal messages that Mm -hmm. say, no matter who you are, you are welcome here. There is pride to being you. You don't have to necessarily be someone different or conform or contort yourself, but you can actually be who you are and we can celebrate that. I love the ideas that you have for celebration. On the flip side, though, do you have advice for parents of color whose children are experiencing things like bias? Are microaggressions, things like that at their school? 
So the first advice that I always give to parents who ask me a question like that is to listen. Mm. <laughs> I think that sometimes, and very, very well-meaning, we want to jump to action. Oh, what happened? This was mm-hmm. done. You were othered. You were rejected. I'm going to go have this conversation. I'm going to go X, Y, Z. And that may be a part of the ultimate solution, right? That advocacy may certainly be a part of the ultimate solution. And let's think about the eight-year-old who comes home and says, this classmate who I really wanted to be friends with is asking me why my skin is so dark or why my hair is this Mm -hmm. texture. If our first response is, let's go to the school, we miss Mm -hmm. an opportunity to sit with the emotions, Mm -hmm. with the disappointment, with maybe even the confusion of that othering that our children are feeling. So I think the first step always Mm. is to come to those moments as hard as it may be with a listening ear. Mm -hmm. The second part of it is the open heart. So what I mean by that is I think that oftentimes as a mechanism for protecting the innocence of children, we may not share our own experiences or we may not share the fullness Mm -hmm. of our vulnerable Mm. or raw emotions. So I'm not saying necessarily to say, ah, I am so upset that this happened to you, that this bias happened to you, that this microaggression occurred against you. Mm -hmm. So we listen and then we respond with our own true emotion. I remember when Mm -hmm. I was nine and somebody said something like that to me and I was really hoping that you never have that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. It really hurts my heart that you have to have that experience. And let's now, then we get to some of those avenues of advocacy about what are we going to do about that incident? How are we going to respond? How are we going to support the child? But I think starting with listening and then responding with true and vulnerable emotion and maybe even one's own experiences can be really edifying for Mm -hmm. youth who are experiencing those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really good. I know. There is something to be said about just being able as a parent to have that humility in the moment of whatever it is. Your job's not always to react. Sometimes it's just to listen and connect. I appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned, Dr. Sean, some of the research on racial identity and racial affirmation and the importance of that in schools and what they're Mm -hmm. doing. Many PTA leaders are advocating for more inclusive curricula right now. And I feel like there's this huge debate going on in our country about critical race theory, but I'm not sure anyone can define it. I'm not going to ask you today to have to define it all. But I do want to ask, like, when you say there's a lot of research to support this, could you tell us a little more about some of those key things and arm our listeners with some of that evidence? Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciated in the introduction hearing. <laughs> I appreciated and also was like, oh, shaking in my boots, right? Because that's, that's kind of... The- I know, we were like... Do we bring it up? I'm like, but you can't really talk about it without bringing it up because that's what most people know right now, right? No, you're right. And I really appreciated the line there of making sure that youth are not caught in the crossfire Mm -hmm. of this politicized, if we're being honest, conversation that's going on. So I'm not going to define CRT. That is beyond my scope. What I am going to say about how it applies to the research that myself and other scholars do, what we know (laughs) is that it's important for parents to teach their children about 
race and difference. It's important to do that in ways that are developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. So a common example I give is I am not advocating any parent to teach their four-year-old where to place their hands on a steering wheel if they are pulled over by law enforcement. That is just not a developmentally necessary Mm -hmm. conversation to have. But it is important to talk both about, as you said, racial affirmation, pride that one can have in their race and their ethnicity and their cultural heritage, whether again, that's food, that's language, that's dress, that's art, that's music, all of those things. We know actually that teaching and providing messages and examples and exposure to those sorts of things are associated with positive Mm self-esteem for black and brown youth. We know that it is associated often with metrics of academic persistence and in some cases even academic performance. We also know that it can be a buffer against the development of things like being sad or being anxious. So the lesson to teach about culture and race and pride is one. The other is that we know particularly as kiddos are getting in middle childhood age range, that also teaching about the potential of a bias, we call that preparation for bias, teaching about the fact that because your hair texture is a little different or your skin tone is a little different or you have an accent, you may, not necessarily, but you may experience some differential treatment. And importantly, this is what this does not mean about you. And this is what we as a family are going to collectively come and plan and practice about what we're going to do if those moments ever occur to you. So that's when we get into the 10 of 2. That's when we get into what do we do if a teacher repeatedly doesn't call on us or assigns us to a particular part in a story that is played by an enslaved person. That's when we get into those sorts of more coping and more active responses. Mm -hmm. So that pride and the preparation have been in tandem associated with a host of those positive youth outcomes. On the flip side, we know that silence is also a form of socialization. So sometimes Mm -hmm. parents feel like if I don't say anything, if I just close my eyes to it, if I don't speak to race and difference and what's going on, Mm -hmm. then I will continue to protect my children. And I honor that assumption. Unfortunately, the assumption does not bear out in the data and the research that we're seeing. And that silence about race, that children are still getting what we call socialization from other agents. So whether that's the mass media, (laughs) whether that's their peer groups, whether that's school systems, positive or not, they're getting other messages of socialization. So I always encourage parents to say something, and that's all parents. That's whether you're Mm -hmm. black, brown, white, (laughs) all parents should talk about those things. So I think those are three points that our research is consistently showing. Dr. Sean, it is sometimes so hard as a parent to know what to say. Mm -hmm. You think so many things in your mind, like, if I say this the wrong way, am I going to screw him up forever? (laughs) You would never screw your baby up, LaWanda. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So Caleb was in maybe the first grade, and it must have been Black History Month, because he came home and he was very confused. And he said, 
I watched this video on Rosa Parks and I was like, okay, you learned about Rosa Parks today. He was like, why would anybody care where you sat on the bus? Mm. Why did they make such a big deal about her because of the color of her skin? He was just done because we hadn't talked about it. It was in second grade. I was like, nobody told me they were talking about this. So I was (laughs) prepared. And he was just like, do these white people like this still exist? Are they still alive? Because they talked about Rosa Park when she died, blah, 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 stuff like that. So he was just like, if we go outside, will somebody tell me to sit somewhere on the bus, in the back of the bus instead of the front? I was like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to say. So I just kept listening. And then I said, well, let's think about what she did. Mm. I said, she stood up for herself, right? I said, so that helped other people stand up for themselves. I was making it up as I went along. I had no idea because I was just not prepared. I thought, yeah, we'll have this conversation, but it'll be a long time from now, not really the first grade. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that it has to be levels. I couldn't Mm -hmm. go all the way in. Mm-hmm. So it's rough. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Parenting is hard work. So yes. we are so glad that we have people like you to help us answer some of these questions that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And they get harder as they get older. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. If I may just yes. respond really quickly to that. So you said so many great things. So first of all, absolutely. We often joke that But it's serious, right? We didn't get the playbook of parenting downloaded on our phones. (laughs) And then if we did, first of all, let us know. But then second of all, for whatever reason, it didn't have the version where we talk about race and stuff. That part, (laughs) they left out of the beta version. (laughs) So already, yes, parenting is difficult. Talking about race, racism, difference is difficult And the other important thing that you said, LaWanda, is there isn't one right way or one set of things that you have to or should say. My encouragement is always to have the conversation and to also, again, this is a beautiful moment to say, you know what? I was not thinking I was going to have to have this conversation with you, but (laughs) I thought we had a little bit more time. Even the levity and the humor in that and the honesty in that, I think... When that son, that daughter, they look back, they'll respect that. They'll appreciate that there wasn't this attempt of, oh, I have it all and I understand it all because we don't. I think if we understood why racism has persisted the way it has, then our society would be different. So, yeah, we don't Mm -hmm. have it all figured out (laughs) and we don't know what all to say. But you started and you recognize that they don't need everything, but I'm going to give them enough to be able to rise and to still do the things that a first or second grader needs and wants to do. So I want to just commend mm-hmm. you. Oh, well, thanks. Didn't you feel go, good in the moment, but I appreciate <laughs> I that. That's helpful. I'm waiting for my three-year-old to come home with those questions because oh, it will happen. <laughs> right? Especially as a white person. It's super important to have those conversations, even though... Her view of it might be very different Mm. or Mm -hmm. she might not even be able to articulate it. My imagination goes a little wild in your example, Luanda, of like, Mm -hmm. what could your child's teacher or the school have been doing? You're always out on the limb a little bit as a parent, but I feel like 
there are things schools could do to help make those conversations a little more intentional, Mm -hmm. a little easier. What do you think, Dr. Sean? Am I living in a la-la land or are schools actually doing that? You're not living in a la-la land. I think that there's a shift and there's an importance that is being conveyed among school systems of that intentionality. I have a very similar story to yours, Lawanda, where I Mm. was interviewing this black family and a four-year-old came home from daycare and was crying because they decided at their preschool to teach the impact of segregation during February that they were going to put up signs about who could drink at which water fountains at the school. (gasps) And the parents were just floored because they were like, First of all, four years old. Second of all, I would not have used that demonstration to drive that particular point home. For the civil rights movement, this is what you choose to use. Okay, I'm done. So in that (laughs) moment, as I was talking with that family, I was like, well, how did that go? And they mentioned, yeah, we advocated. We said, in the future, can we have more communication? And I really think just the bi-directional communication and collaboration is really key. Some black and brown families are primarily who I've worked with. Some of those families, they are a little wary of letting the school into what's going on at home. And I do understand the historical realities of that. And I think it's important to still communicate. So that way, teachers... Other educators can help to plan ways to say, okay, how can we, again, develop curriculum that's developmentally appropriate? How do we maybe send something home in the backpack to say, hey, just so you know, we're getting ready to have this slant of conversations. And just to at least maybe get caregivers ready to either have that conversation in advance with their children or to follow up behind it with some of the socialization that they have agreed as a family that they intend to do. So I think it can be a little bit that can go a long way. Some of it is happening, and I think more of it could happen and will happen, I think, moving forward. I'm excited Mm -hmm. for that day. (laughs) I have one more question. You've given some good advice for Black families and youth about how to talk about racial pride. I'm curious if you could give some advice to some of our white families who might Mm -hmm. be listening. What do you suggest is the role or strategies that white parents could use to make schools more affirming places for Mm -hmm. our young people of color? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Helen, I honor you for this question. I think a lot of times when we think about racial socialization, when we think about racial identity, we think of that as a BIPOC endeavor. And we don't think Mm -hmm. about the importance of white families having conversations about the meaning and significance of race, the meaning and significance and history of whiteness. So for some families, there is learning that has to be done in order to do that socialization. So I encourage folks to take that up and to find out more about whiteness and about what things they are proud of and what parts of their culture and heritage they bring forth and communicating those things as well. So Mm -hmm. I think that that is one is to have those conversations internally with regards to the school aspect. So if you're a part of a school district where they are still maybe teaching about the civil war, that's fresh on my mind because I'm in Richmond Luanda and I actually grew up a few hours for each other, and I learned about it as the War of Northern Aggression. I don't know if you did, Luanda. We're only a couple years apart, but that's how I learned about it in middle school. It's a whole story for me. I'll save that for another day. 
But thank you. That's right on point. So when we learn about those things, or again, as a Texan, the way that I learned about the Alamo, whew, and now as an adult, I'm like, oh, I learned about that a little bit yeah. differently than how it went down. So encouraging, retelling those stories or telling those stories with more nuance and context and being a co-conspirator and helping other parents of color who are also likely bringing this to attention in schools and may not be getting heard at meetings or otherwise to also show up and say, no, we have to do our curriculum different. We're doing all of our students a disservice. When we see it as a way that we are looking to benefit all of our students and we come to the table in that way, then I think that that is how we can move the meter on some of these conversations and the way in some of these lessons are taught in our schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Helen, I'll just say I learned it in fourth grade South Carolina history. Yeah. And I came home and I said, Mom, Dad, why do we live here? (laughs) I don't understand. I don't get it. It was very traumatic. So I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Oh, man. Dr. Sean, we really could talk to you all day. (laughs) Thank you so much for everything that you share with us. But I do have one last question for you. Out of everything that we've discussed, what is one thing families should walk away from today's episode? Yeah. If there's one thing that families Mm -hmm. should walk away from today's episode with, it is to have courageous conversations. Please talk among caregivers in your household Mm. to get on the same page about how you want to talk about these conversations and talk with a listening ear, Mm -hmm. with your heart to your young folks. And again, that's all families under the sound of my voice, no matter what your skin tone, color, origin, any of that, it's important to have those courageous conversations. Nice. Thank you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Sure, absolutely. So easiest way to find me is to look at my Twitter at SC, as in Christopher, T as in Tracy Jones. You can find me there and there's links to my other sites there. And then also I would love for folks to check out more content about this by following at O-U-R-M-H-M. So that stands for Our Mental Health Minute. But again, it's at O-U-R-M-H-M and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook under that same handle. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to visit our Apple podcast page and leave a rating and review. Your reviews and ratings help others find our show and we appreciate hearing from you. And as always, for more resources related to today's episode, including the great handles that Dr. Sean shared, please check out notesfromthebackpack.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.